0: Let's be honest, the organization that learns the fastest are the ones that's gonna survive. So when we break down the organization, it's made of people. So the more quickly your people can learn, the more relevant they'll be, the more relevant your business will be, and the more able you are to respond that'll be, that'll make you resilient.
1: Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with The 7 Habits, you can get my guide, The 7 Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders, at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of the Insert Human listeners around the world. Thank you for joining us again. We have another amazing human to converse with today on the show, a friend of a friend of mine. His name is Dave Dame. He's currently the director of accessibility at Microsoft, uh, used to run Agile for Scotiabank, which is a a bank I know quite well. You know, effectively, Dave, I think on paper is an Agile expert, which is, we're going to talk a bit about that in a second. But my interaction with Dave a couple months back made me think that he's actually a human expert. (laughs) And that's really what we want to talk about. You know, the issue of sort of humanity through the lens of this question or this topic called Agile and more broadly through this topic called change management or transformation, which seemingly every organization in the world is scratching their head around. And by the way, I I forgot to mention, for those that are interested in the technical CV, Dave is a Scrum trainer, a Scrum master one and two, a Scrum product owner one and two, a Scrum professional, and most importantly, a Six Sigma black belt. So holy crap. (laughs) Dave, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation, I think, because when we talk about humans, that's where we got to start with, right? And everything else supports humans, whether it's process, practice, or whatever. We're all in service to supporting humans.
1: And you know, one of my, one of my things that I have said to a lot of CEOs along the way is your organization, your company, or whatever it is, is simply a collection of humans.
0: Right. It's an ecosystem of humanity.
1: Right. And so you can get hung up on the specifics of the technology and the process and the the nap of your carpet and how nice or not nice your offices are. But at the end of the day, you know, what you're doing is leading humans and engaging humans and motivating humans and aligning humans to realize outcomes that both serve the corporation, but also serve the humans. You know, I'm already so excited about what we're the next 45 minutes or so. So tell us a little bit about this agile thing. So as an observer, you know, I am not a technologist. Everybody's very clear about that. But I've spent a fair amount of time, particularly over the last 10 years, in the corporate space, in the digital transformation space, observing this thing called agile and realizing there's a lot of confusion about it. Like there's a fuzziness about it. Like, is it a technology? Is it a software? Is it a way? Of, is it a cultural thing? So as an expert in this space, what is it, Dave, and or I think as importantly, how should organizations approach it, think about it, invest in it? So riff for me on that one.
0: That's a great question. Um, simply put, how I like to describe Agile is Agile brings humanity back into complex decision making. So like you said, um, Agile got its roots in technology because technology was very complex and very unknowing. So we needed a model where we could do smaller iterations and learn by doing, right? Because we can theorize all we want, we can make all the best laid plans. Planning is important, but the plan is not as strong. So agile allows you to continuously plan as you learn, so you can steer the course instead of hoping for the course. And what I love to tell CEOs is, I remember at my last position at Vice President of Scotia, I remember being asked, why should I care about Agile? And I looked at that person and said, how would you love the ability to be wrong and quickly correct yourself and learn before it truly impacted a lot of your customers? If that's what you want, then Agile for you, simply put, Agile is a way where we can apply the learning from doing, because we minimize risk by doing short batches, and we accept the world's going to change. Think about when we do long-term plans, right? We hope two things. We hope, like heck, our planning were right, and pl- And the number two thing we're hoping is the world and people and customers will not change in that two years. Both of those are fallacies. Because think about when you start a project, that's the least you know about it. That's when you have all the aspirations, like, yeah, we're gonna do it, high five. And you notice we start every project in green and everybody's surprised near two thirds of the way or near the end when it goes to red. I'm that surprised because we gave it a green label before it proved itself. I'd, I'd rather start every project in red until we're comfortable, we understand the complexity, understand the risk, and understand what we can do. Well, you know what's so interesting
1: about that description of agile relative to what was before is it very much applies to the, the startup world in that, uh, and I saw this at Harvard when I was running the innovation lab there, that these teams would become so fixated on the path and they were convinced that the path they had at the beginning was exactly the right path. And they just charge forward to build that thing the way they envision that thing, not being open to iteration, not being open to the possibility of being wrong. And so they'd get to the finish line and the finish line would be a
0: failure. <laughs> yeah. And that's when it's most expensive, right? When you wait so long before you really validate it, you're increasing the risk, right? That's what short iterations do, it reduces the risk. Think about if you were driving 500 miles. Are you only gonna check the map to see if you're at the right place at the 500 mile mark? No, you're gonna follow the map along the way, make course corrections as you get detours, and that's what Agile gives you. Take a moment to breathe, stop. Is what we thought still true? What did we learn? And how do we do the next short iteration? So we're not planning to the finish line. We're looking to the finish line, but we're just planning the next maybe 200 miles or 100 miles. And the shorter the iteration, the more course correction you can make.
1: So when you, in your vast experience, have showed up in an organization to impart, embed an agile methodology, an agile mindset, an agile set of technologies, what is the resistance
0: the to as humans, we don't like change, right? We get comfortable, even though we know it's not the best way to do it. But boy, we're comfortable because we know it. So when you're asking somebody to do something new, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Think about when you do a new hobby. Think about when you do something different than you normally do, whether it's a new exercise routine or diet. It's scary because it's unfamiliar. And that's what their resistance is. And what most organizations do, which is wrong, is they don't reduce the amount of output they're expecting because they think people can switch to agile and hit the ground running. The reality is they're learning a new way of working. They're working differently. How can we set the same expectations for delivery? I think we have to be able to say, Let's slow down while we build this new muscle and then speed up once we get the muscle. They think it's just an instant switch. We decide we're going to be agile Monday. By Tuesday, the teams are up and running. And that's not realistic. You have to slow it down so they can feel safe to learn the new way of doing it. Like if you just started taking dance classes next Monday, You wouldn't sign up for Dancing with the Stars on Tuesday. You would want to really learn, right, and get comfortable and confident. So organizations usually think agile is an immediate relief. It's a lagger because everybody's got to learn to work differently because it's a higher, more engagement way of working. You don't get to make a decision once every seven months. You need to make smaller, little decisions every two weeks or every four weeks. It takes time to build that new cadence. But what it gives you is your hands on the steering wheel all the way to the finish line.
1: I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I, I could surmise that changing the time horizon for delivery or slowing down the pace. Both of those things are anathema to the corporate machine. Right. I mean, I remember years ago, I was advising uh, the ex- executive team at Polaroid, the, the business side of the business. And I brought up the whole issue of digital imaging. And I brought up the fact that likely to transform the organization into a digital imaging company from a silver halide imaging company, likely they were going to have to slow things down and they were going to have to actually get smaller before they got bigger. And both of those statements, I was viewed as the devil. <laughs> you know, like. No, we can't slow down. No, we can't change the you know any of the dates. No, no, no. And how do you deal with that?
0: Well, I'm thinking about my like companies like Kodak and Blockbuster. You know, Kodak, ironically, you know, got compromised by the digital camera market. But ironically, they were the first ones to invent the digital camera. But they didn't know how to offset the revenue they made from film developing. So instead of chasing the new income, they tried to keep and hold and preserve and hope it would never go away. And if you look at Blockbuster, they seen what was coming. Netflix was perfectly clear of what they were doing. But Blockbuster got so comfortable in their model of late fees and other stuff they sold at the cash register, they're always afraid to risk income today for the revenue customers are going to because they're chasing the money instead of chasing the value. And the companies that did it well, like look at Apple, when um, they came up with the the music store, right? People were starting to buy music digitally. And when streaming came, they decided, you know what? We're going to close down the music store in a number of years, and we're going to focus on streaming. They don't try to keep both up. So you learn to take that chance and follow where the market's going or follow the money versus hoping the money will never move. And that's where being agile really helps you is you can start by experimenting small, quickly do what if we start our own music service? How do we get subscribers? How is that business model different? And through doing things very agile and testing and learning very quickly, you can get there, right? And startups have that ability to move quick, but large organizations are going to need to compete with startups. So they need to realize the money they're getting today might not come from the same place as tomorrow. And they're waiting for certainty. And in today's world, certainty won't exist. And when you can't predict the future, you need to react as quick as you can to the present. And that's what Agile gives you. Without a magic ball, you just need to know how to respond. And agility allows you to do small, tiny increments to go, hey, is this worth doing? And you can either cut it quick, because nobody likes stopping a project or initiative, right? Because they see it as a waste of money instead of the money they save from pursuing it further. That's the beauty of shorter pride. You learn quicker. You can decide to either abandon and move before you spend any more money. So we can't think about wasting what we currently did and start thinking about, look how much we would saved from doing something we've already learned that won't give us that value. The other thing
1: that, that you touched on is, just curious, if, are there organizations you've come across that are simply better at the idea of failure? Because what you've, what you've suggested in the ideal system, you, you, know, you, you make short, small bets, Maybe they work, maybe they don't. If they don't work, you iterate, you move on. You allow failures. You're not trying to build the sort of perfect thing from the start. Have you seen certain kinds of organizations, certain profiles that are more open? Because failure is not one of our strengths. (laughs) (laughs) Right?
0: Well, because we use the word failure. But what is failure if we look at it? It's really learning. So if we ever want to make learning a first-class citizen, Failure is an F word, and F word is always not easily um, digestible or acceptable. So we got to move it to learning. But to your question, I wouldn't target it to a specific company. Usually it's industry, right? So industries that don't have a lot of competition and there's a tough barrier into entry, they're not good in agile. They just got to suck less than one of the two other competitors. And especially if they're reporting quarterly, they're only looking at the world quarterly. The companies that do it well know it's for the long game. So usually tech companies are more open to really changing, doing the way they do things because it's an easy barrier to market. Competition is huge. The easy, it's so easy for customers to be fickle now and change products and services like How often have we changed cell phone providers? It's so easy now, it's just a click of a button. So when competition is great, easy barrier to entry, and it's easy for our customers to transition from one to the other, they need agile, right? So they're gonna wanna do it because they see it as a way of survival. Where industries like maybe healthcare and finance, there's less of a competition right? Because there's usually regulations to get in the industry and there's a lot of upfront costs where technology, you just need, you know, a laptop, uh, a person with an idea and an internet connection. So usually when when that happens, they know they got to iterate because technology was always complex and unknown with AI and everything. We've accepted that we can't know the answers and Legacy organizations, people have built their career from knowing the most, making the best decisions, and providing the best certainty. And that business model worked when the world moved at a lot slower pace, right? The The change from 1950 to 1980 was small compared to the change from, you know, let's look at 2018, to last year to this year. Exactly. So the change is happening so much more rapid. It's those organizations that can realize that, you know what, it's not about operational efficiency. It's about creating an organization that can respond. Because think about those legacy organizations. They've optimized their processes where they got so much efficiency. Everybody's utilized at 100% they're efficient, they're predictable. But those organizations that realize people can't always be utilized at 100%, let's make it 60 or 70%. They have the most room to be flexible and learn and be able to adapt. And in technology, we always knew that. We had to accept that. So once they understand what got them there, it's not going to get them where they need to be then I think they'll be more open to Agile. And that might mean take some quarterly hits when they got to report into the stock market. Because let's be honest, we always blame leaders of organizations, but it's the shareholders and their willingness to accept risk that drives that culture in organizations. People that invest, like is an investor into a blue chip, like medical and finance, are a different kind of investors that invest in tech where they're going to accept risk and take chances. And that culture, just from my experience, goes through naturally.
1: So you know what's so interesting about that is I just finished writing a book ostensibly about the state of the world and what we can do about it. And I talk a lot about the three industries that underpin, call it modern society, finance, healthcare, and education, and their need to adapt faster for a variety of reasons. And just as I think about the agile task or opportunity, how you would, I guess, rank those three relative to their adoption of agile methodologies. I mean, you've implied a bank is gonna be much slower and maybe not so great at it compared to a technology company. But within that list of three, education, finance, and healthcare, you have a sense of like, are banks doing okay? And I mean, coming from Harvard, I would say, there's not a lot of agile anything in the education space, but you know, what's your view?
0: Well, you got to think about, so banks, we can harp on them all we want, but they sell trust. So they can't take the risk of their website being down, data loss, or anything like that, because what they sell the customers is trust that, you know what, your money's going to be here when you want it. So their appetite of users is different and customers is different. And same with medical, right? Like they can't rapidly speed up something and accidentally, you know, put a poisonous wrong. So the impact to loss is huge. Where at education, I think, here's the interesting, now that you mentioned it, I think about it. Let's look at education. It should be all about learning, right? How do we apply the learning and learning? And Agile, that's what it's based on, is how do we you know, learn empirically and build off of what we learned? You would think those two models are more aligned. And I would probably say it's a matter of timing, right? I think if we get new teachers coming in out of teaching school, they're going to maybe look at new ways of teaching because we've learned that there's a lot of different ways people learn. So I think The new progressive teachers will be open to find new ways of learning, where the ones that have been in the industry for so long, they've optimized their course material, right? They've refined it over time, and to the point it's, for them, they feel it's good enough. Their students have graduated, moved on, but it really takes someone to understand where the education system is failing, and how do we adapt the learning to the student versus forcing them on a standard curriculum. Because I think the way we tried to teach before and learning before is we tried to optimize, right? Just like I said, organizations that don't change get really good efficiency, really good utilization. I think schools get that way too. They don't have nearly as many teachers as they need and the support they need. So they've optimized for efficiency instead of optimizing for impact. And that means having more people to have more time to think. Because Agile is great for delivery. But if you don't balance it with enough time and reflection to be able to really go over what you learned, you're just moving quickly into a wall instead of learning from it and going, do I still need to go through that wall? Do I go around it or do I go over it? So Agile isn't about quick as you can. Is finding the right balance of reflection from what you've learned and how quickly you try something new.
1: And the topic of impact to me brings up the question of intention, which is what is the intention of the entity? What is impact? You know, and I think in a large chunk of corporate world, impact is shareholder satisfaction, financial performance, top and bottom line, you know, earnings per share, whatever versus uh, call it a more dimensional definition of impact. I think in the education space, impact is graduation rate and, you know, diploma distribution. And, you know, in the healthcare space, impact is survivability or longevity or mitigation of chronic chronic condition. And all three to me strike me as opportunities to expand our definition of impact.
0: Well, it's funny how you measured all that. And you're right. That's what they look like. But I think it's because we're trying to measure too high level up. It starts with, how are we impacting the one user, the one customer, the one student, the one patient? It's how do we impact the one and then extend to many, where I think too often we're worried about this. And this can be always gained by getting more efficiency, cutting costs. We can cheat the bottom line, but are we doing any more impact? No, we're trying to get that OKR adjusted, or not even OKR, those big business targets. We're gaming it so we look good for Wall Street, but we're forgetting if we impact the user well and if we extend to the variety of our customers well, those rest of those numbers should take care of themselves. But when we focus on the very top, we do a lot of gaming in the middle to make sure that number is where we need it to be. Exactly right. So, Dave, let's pretend I'm a CEO
1: and um, getting hammered in front of the competition. Customers are not happy or as happy as they used to be. I've read a lot about this agile thing. I've heard a lot about this agile thing. It's not, it's not an approach that my company applies today. If we met in an event or something, I said, okay, Dave, what are three things that you think are absolutes to ensure, call it agile success? Like, What would you reduce it down to?
0: The first thing I usually like to ask is, what is my forgiveness rate? I'm going to ask <laughs> you to change your organization. It's going to be painful, but what is my, my forgiveness factor I love before you fail me? Right. So I usually like to ask that first in agile movements. And then I'll ask you, what does success look like? What you gave me some very general things, because agile isn't like an ungoverned speedometer. What is it you want to solve right now with agile? So I would probably dive down to maybe one business unit that's bleeding the most. And I would say, "Okay, let's focus on them. And I need focus. And I need your time and attention because you need to be learning to restructure the decision-making all the way down. Because I assume a lot of the decisions are being at the top. How much of the decisions are you willing to push down to reduce the time people are waiting for decisions? So you got to start thinking about that from a culture thing and just go, are you willing to slow, the, and number two, are you willing to slow this business down while well, we can learn why we're failing? It's not that we're driving. It might not be because we're not delivering speed enough. Maybe we don't understand what the customers need today. What are we missing from what they need today? Is the problem still the same? Do we have the right product or service that's meeting their needs? Once we validate that, Third, I'm going to ask you to get a set of users that are or customers that are going to be close to us where we can rapidly build things out to learn from that business unit. And you're going to see a drop-off early, but then you're going to see success. And then you're going to be excited. I want to scale this across the company. I got to make sure you don't lose that focus. Let's nail it before we scale it so we can build the learning mechanisms needed to help do it over to your next business unit or so forth. So very three questions is, how much are you gonna empower everybody from the individual contributor up to where you sit? Two, are you ready to slow down while we learn this? And three, are we gonna be able to work with the set of users for a good set of six months to understand that whether we're hitting the problem, because I can get your organizations to deliver fast. They might deliver unsatisfaction quicker than they did before, not what they need to do. So I would do those three things and go, after you've told me what my forgiveness factor is, and we'd move forward from there.
1: And I think implicit in your answer is that, that this is not a purely delegatable proposition that the leadership of the company necessarily is must be involved like you know and i actually had an experience with a company i worked with in new york where they made the whole agile thing a product development thing and disassociated it from how the rest of the organization was operating and i think what you just implied in your response was you can't disassociate
0: you can't it's actually very connected and dependent. and you brought up a good point people made mistakes at on delivery At some point, decisions need to be made that everybody needs to be involved. Everybody needs to change the way they're working, not just the IT. When you get agile out of the technology and into the business, you're really getting it where it's more powerful. Because if you just do it in delivery, even if it's successful, all you're going to be successful at is not hitting the mark quicker. So how do you get vertically from the top down, to be able to make those department decisions, the wider organization decisions, the business decisions, it needs either people that are empowered to make the and qualified to make those decisions at the right time. Because there's two things, uh, Chris, that really slows down Agile. It's either waiting for a decision to be made, or waiting to make a decision. Both those two things are the biggest enablers of slowing companies down. Cause they'll be like, why didn't you move quicker? I'm like, well, we're waiting for you to make a decision. Do we do path A or path B? And usually we gotta wait because all the decision-making is far from the delivery. And the longer the path, it's the longer signal the feedback, right? You need to bring it close. So you're right, the whole organization needs to know it's going to be hard work. You as the president or CEO, you're going to have to change the way you work. You're either going to have to delegate more down or more readily. And it's hard for you, right? Because you're like, I'm a CEO. I got to where I am by doing what I've done. right? But there's a reason why CEOs are getting shorter and shorter tenures. Either you have to adapt what you're doing or realize maybe your responsibility is just to move it to the next phase and then someone else grabs it from there.
1: So a lot of what we've been talking about touches on the other big question I have for you today, and and that is this matter of transformation slash change management. And again, the last 10 years, I've spent more and more time talking with, working with organizations, trying to figure out how to change. And I think a lot of what you've said about Agile applies to this question of, what gets in the way of change management? What are the critical enablers? Um, you know, We see with digital transformation specifically this presumption that it's all about the technology when you and I both know it's actually mostly about the people, but what's your sort of similar response to how do you take the fuzziness out of transformation and where are organizations getting it wrong and or how do they get it right?
0: First off, I hate the word transformation, right? I do too, <laughs> I do too. It is assuming You're just going to move from where you are to where you want to be, and it's done. To me, it's got to be continuous. Whenever it's a transformation project, now you have your people doing two projects. The one to get the product that you make money out the door, and this internal project you put on them that you didn't account for in capacity planning. So all you've guaranteed of is doubling their work, hoping for a change. So that's why it's got to be thought of as continuous. And, you know, the companies that get it wrong realize this isn't a project. There is no finish line. This is a journey. It's not just changing from A to B. It's continually changing to A prime one, A prime two, maybe to B and C when there's a major change. But it's getting good at doing all the little changes before the big changes. And a lot of organizations get transformation drunk or change happy, where they have HR doing a transformation, the product development team doing a transformation, finance doing a transformation. Everybody gets so fatigued because everybody's doing transformation. What time is left to do the work that we actually got hired to do? So first of all, we know the practicality about managing work in progress. We got to get better at managing change in progress. How many changes are we introducing that will do the right balance of learning and still getting stuff out the door? Because unfortunately, you can't close your doors down for a year and do the major transformation. You're actually changing the tire on the car while it's still moving. So be very deliberate on what change you want to roll out and go, what change do we want to try? When it gets to something, we can be satisfied. What is the next one? What is the next one? And start managing that like a roadmap of what's the next change we should should apply. But it's the human factor, right? It's getting people to feel safe. We know this is going to take longer to learn to do it. We're still learning. So leaders being almost human saying, I'm going to make mistakes in this because I'm not going to be available when you need me. I'm not going to respond and then taking responsibility for it and really kind of moving on. It's not about being agile. It's about applying the learning. It's about changing the mindset of we can do things differently. We can do that because we like to say change management. Can any of us truly manage change? We can learn to adapt to change. We can learn to absorb the change, but we can't manage change. We can't stop the world from changing. Particularly
1: given the current pace, and it's only going to keep accelerating. How can you manage something that's changing every nanosecond? You know, like what?
0: Yeah, exactly. So when you can accept you can't manage change, but you can respond to it and you can learn different tools, then those companies do it well. And it doesn't matter if it's agile. And even now, I, I started an accessibility role. I thought I was going to have to leave all my change leadership skills behind as I took on this new role. But you know what? You just unplug agile, insert accessibility, and teach people the complexity of it and understand that it. it is the same model. Because humans need to be treated like human. You can't force everybody on a roadmap for transformation. Every human learns differently, every human responds differently. So when you gotta realize you gotta move them and you can't predict when they're changed. Cause you know, we get the early adopters, they'll grab it, love it. We'll get like the light, as we start to build mass, we'll get the people that are just undecided. But then those detractors, we're always gonna have the detractors. So I guess to answer your previous question, organizations that do it well know they could be losing a lot of their employees as they don't want to change. And if you truly want to change because it's the best of the business, you have to accept people are going to decide for them whether they want to be part of the change or not. A lot of organizations go to try not to disrupt their employees or change those laggers But in making them happy, you lose the high performers. So they got to realize that attrition is part of the change. The skills that got you there might not be the skills that'll take you there.
1: It reminds me of when I I got to the innovation lab and there were some, I'll call it opportunities to uh, evolve the value proposition and have greater impact. And so I gathered the staff at some point and said, listen, you know, the metaphor I'm going to use is we're on an island, which in higher education, it is an island, and the Innovation Lab was an island within the Harvard Island. We're on this island, and it's all fine, but there's an island across the way that actually represents higher impact, higher job satisfaction, higher customer satisfaction. The only problem is there's a shark-infested lagoon between our island and the island we want to get to how many of you want to go with me swim across the lagoon and you know my the bell curve applied you know 25% of them immediately raised their hand and 50% of them were sort of hesitant but maybe open and then 25% of them would never swim across that lagoon <laughs> and i you know and i think then you know there's this question for the corporations what do you do with those 25% yeah
0: and it's being comfortable with Help them move on to be in an environment where they want to be. In demonstrating that humanity, you'll get other people that want to join you because they believe in where you're going and what you're doing. Because what really slows down people from change, all of us, me included, we have a big fear that we're going to fail. And we're so scared of failing, it prevents us from change. Like if you think about when the pandemic hit, we changed like we never saw before. Like the fact you and I met online remotely on a video call from a common friend probably wouldn't have existed back then, right? Because we're always taught, if you're not in the office, nothing gets done. But when we're forced to change because there was no other option, look how quickly we did it. Look how resilient we were. So you gotta, I think as humans, we gotta believe we can change and we've changed because we're a species we are today. We've survived fire, we've survived, you know, getting out of the Best cage. Lunch. Exactly. <laughs> so and that's where I'm hoping this pandemic or even our memories of the pandemic, we can take the confidence we learn from how we can adapt to how do we adapt to this new hybrid world where some are in the office, some are remotely. And we just got to accept we'll figure it out because it was funny. Like all leaders, as we're discussing, what does the new way of working look like? We wanted to be for sure we knew the plan. And I'm like, did we know the plan coming into the pandemic? No. Why do we think now we're much more smarter? We should just have the more confidence that we'll figure it out.
1: Right, right. The other thing that this conversation is prompting is before, three years ago, I was with a group of CEOs of banks in Latin America, and they wanted to meet with me to talk about how to transform their culture. At the time, I shared and now a now quote from a friend of mine, this idea that behavior are the building blocks of culture. So if you want to change a culture, you have to look at behavior. And then another friend of mine pointed out, well, underneath behavior are mindsets and beliefs. So if you want to change the culture, you have to change the behaviors. If you want to change the behaviors, you have to change the mindsets and the beliefs. And I shared much of this with these CEOs. And I said, and the mindset and belief part, in part, comes from your own mindsets and beliefs and your own behaviors. So the logic flow here is if you want to change the organization, you have to change yourself. And you said this earlier. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that and what you've experienced As you said, the CEO is like, you know, I've been working 30 years to get this position. I was successful. My mindsets and beliefs helped me get here. My behaviors helped me get here. Why in God's name should I change the way of me? I just need them to change the way of them.
0: Yeah. You know, and I'll even take it one step further down than when you said. From my experience, and I've done this in many organizations from startup to enterprises at scale. Quite simply, it breaks down to what do you reward and punish for, right? So let's look at a standard performance thing. It will be how many things have you delivered, right? So that gives a mindset that delivery is the most important thing. But what about if we supplemented that with how many projects did you stop because you realized we weren't going to get the value from it? Right, so when you start rewarding equally for how much things people stop, as well as what they deliver, and find out whatever that balance is, it starts making the mindset of we can be wrong, we can quit things, and that bubbles up, right? Because right now you'll go to the performance review, Dave. You know you delivered ten out of these twelve things. Here's your raise, bonus, shares, whatever. But, if we looked at it and went, "You know what? you were more vocal, you actually spoke up and challenged our things that we approved earlier, regardless of what level they were approved at, we find that valuable, and when they see people are getting rewarded for being able to be that autonomous and to be to be able to be that diverse thought and challenge things and getting the data to show. This is no longer worth pursuing. That's when you get a culture where everybody will act as if they were good decision makers. Now they're not getting rewarded to make decisions. They're getting rewarded to churn out more widgets. And you got to really look at how you want to reward and punish at every level and every position to begin to get those behaviors. To begin to get those behaviors recognized. And that comes up with the leadership too. If a leader can stand up and say, hey, I was doing this transformation. Oops, wrong time. We shouldn't have done it. We're going to stop and we're going to do this. I was wrong. You're right, that sets the example. But when they get to see it at close proximity as that's distributed to the organization, which starts with reward and punishment, then you build that culture of, everybody feeling responsibility to make a decision at what's best, and I won't get penalized for
1: it. I just want to underscore what Dave just said relative to not just corporate change, corporate transformation, but systems change, that the incentive structure, the incentives and measures, and this is deeply, broadly proven by expansive research, <laughs> that you know it's critical and, and it tends to be a big miss. The other thing that you just said, Reminds me of a conversation I had last week with a group of HR executives about the same topic, organizational transformation, change, whatever. And I I brought up the tactic which I've employed in many of the companies I've run and and or advised. And that is the simple tactic of making behaviors part of the job description of everybody in the company and part of the performance assessment.
0: It's funny, right? We call them soft skills, but... My goodness, what these last two years have shown us, they're the most critical skills. And I'll hear, I, I talk to HR professionals all the time too, Chris, and they're like, our managers just aren't growing their people. And I'm like, are they getting rewarded too? Because usually the manager has, what did your department deliver? What did you do? Are you incentivizing them to go, how many people have you promoted? How many people have went above you? How many courses have they took? Did you use all the training budget? Because now they get rewarded for not using the budget. And me, I've never been rewarded for that. I usually get the, you know, if you could be a little more efficient. And I'm like, you like the outcome. So you're asking me to choose from outcome and efficiency. I'm going to keep going outcome and realize I'm not going to be the dollar saver you want me to be, but I'll be the impactful person you want to be.
1: It goes back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about how an organization is simply the collection of individuals. From that, you can then say, well, the development of the organization is necessarily the development of the individuals, which means professional development at every level is requisite. And to your point, the incentive structure, the measures need to reflect that truth.
0: You have nailed it, Chris. Let's be honest, the organization that learns the fastest are the ones that's going to survive. So when we break down the organization, it's made of people. So the more quickly your people can learn, the more relevant they'll be, the more relevant your business will be, and the more able you are to respond, that'll be, that'll make you resilient. Like, you know, education is thought of as a cost. It should be one of those direct inputs to organizational survival. And then uh, reward and punishment structure, our incentive structure needs to be aligned to that. So I'm mindful of the time and I promised
1: to get you out of here by 11. Same question on change that I asked on agile. I meet you at a party or an event. I asked the question because I like to help the listeners walk away with, okay these are the you know, one or two things I can do or talk to my boss about whatever. So in this big amorphous blob called change management, what would be your top three bits of advice to a leader on how to help his or her
0: organization? Listen to your people, right? Listen to all your people all the way at the bottom. Cause it's no secret, right? We as consultants, all we do is go talk to their people. We put our invoice on it and our banner and they're like, wow, that's awesome we just mind the gold in your own organization. So be ready to listen. And the reason why they contract us out, because they don't take the time to listen. They got to really carve up the time to listen. If they can't manage their calendar to listen, then how can you manage their business? They got to take the time to listen. Two, think about the behaviors you want and what you want from a business and from the individuals that work for you that support the business. Figure those out. And then thirdly, decide how you're going to invest into that, whether it's education and compensation model. Walk away with those three things and you're going to do it. You can say, oh, listening, that's easy enough. I bet you if you go to any C-Stacks calendar, it is like an ugly Tetris board. And I always like to say, Do you need to be at all those meetings? Is it for your ego or is it to drive the business? Because like we said at the top of the call, it's about humans. And if you're not really connecting with the humans that are working for your business, then what are you spending your time on? Sure, you got to do vision. Sure, you got to do the whole marketing and be the face of the organization. But if you can't do that, Who are you going to hire underneath you that's going to do that? Because I realize there's only a finite amount of time in the day. But if you don't build a listening mechanism, how can you respond to what's being learned?
1: That was a perfect wrap-up of our wonderful conversation. And I reiterate what I said at the beginning. Dave is a brilliant technologist, but I think more importantly or as importantly, he's a brilliant human being. And Dave, thank you for being a part of insert human.
0: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com from more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.